Amen. Well, I enjoyed singing those hymns with you, saints. Uh, we chose those songs specifically so that we would be reminded of what it is that Christ has done for us. And that anything that we do is dependent upon that first act of Jesus working in us. Our justification, even our sanctification, is solely dependent upon who God is and how Christ is working in us. So it's been a joy to sing those songs together with you all this morning. Um, Bibles are coming around if you would like to take a Bible. It's always good to have one if you didn't perhaps bring one. Also, an outline of the sermon as well is coming to you if that helps you to be able to follow along. But we will be in 2 Peter once again this morning. So please do open up your Bible to there or turn it on to there if it's an iPad or something like that. 2 Peter is at the very end or near the very end of the New Testament, just a handful of pages before John's Apocalypse, uh, the book Revelation. <clears throat> well, if you remember, we are in the opening section of Peter's letter, and in this letter, he's providing admonitions against apostasy. If we're trying to think of what the whole letter is about, Peter is describing these admonitions against apostasy. He's wanting to help Christians to know what to do in light of people who deny the faith, in light of people who profess belief in Christ, and then you know, they live as members of the covenant community, the church, they get baptized upon the profession of faith, and they participate in the Lord's Supper, the, the visible means of grace, the sacraments of the new covenant, and yet they end up at some point denying and rejecting the Christian faith. And a big part of that is to be guarded against those who attempt to retain the title of Christian, but yet live in such a way and teach and believe such things that are contrary to what God reveals is right and true in His Word. And if people were to be like that and to remain in the church, in the covenant community, they would end up dividing and leading others astray in it due to their apostasy. And so Peter writes this letter to help the church. And we need this help as well. This is a problem that we face in this present evil age ourselves, just like people faced it in Peter's day. And so we're going to spend most, most of our time in verses 8 through 11 this morning in chapter 1. But I want to begin reading at verse 3 because that's the start of this section, this little mini sermon in the letter that he opens up with to the saints here that he is writing to. And so the reading of God's word, and then we'll pray at the end, uh, beginning at verse 3 in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire for this very reason Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, 
be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for preserving your word for us, for intending even for us to be able to read this and to study it and to understand it. And we know, Holy Spirit, that our minds from a rational capacity can understand, but for us to truly understand, for the truths of it to prick our heart, we know that we need you to operate. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, Father and Son, that you would cause us to have our faith increase, that you would give us over to understanding, that you would help us to be led into all truth, that you may be exalted in our lives and given all the, more, the glory that you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, there are two things that this text makes me think of in light of our current culture and society. Uh, first, for as technologically as advanced as we are today, we seem to be actually dumber when it comes to basic biology and identity. Uh, we have people, you know, high up in the government who can't tell you what a woman is. But these same people have no problem saying that a biological male is a woman. People adopt pronouns that have nothing to do with their sex, some even nothing to do with their humanity. There's a large portion of our population that thinks an unborn baby is not yet a person. And increasingly, and sadly as well, there's a growing number of the population that recognizes and affirms those are babies, and yet they're still okay with killing them. But this problem isn't just regulated to outside the church. Those same beliefs are tragically alive and well within many professing churches. And if Twitter is an accurate metric for observation, I'm not really convinced that it is, but looking at it, we would say that this is a pretty big problem. And it's not uncommon, and this is a modern development, uh, for people to consider themselves to be Christian and yet to be openly transgender, openly in a homosexual relationship, openly racist, or simply supportive of those things and, and other things that are contrary to God's word. It would seem that there are many people today who trust that they are Christian, yet they have no idea what a Christian actually is. And just this past week even, there were countless, that I, that I saw at least, so-called progressive Christians who showed they don't understand the gospel at a fundamental level, since they thought that everyone, conservative Christians, should be in support of, pres of the president's student loan debt forgiveness plan, which is really not a forgiveness plan, it's a transfer plan, of course, um, because, because Christ Jesus, and the reason they say that is because Christ Jesus has paid uh, the sin debt of the elect. Well, those are astronomically different things. And, and so the question, what is a Christian, seems to be a question that so many who profess faith have no idea how to really answer. And then secondly, and related to this, not only do people not know what a Christian is, they also don't know what a Christian is to do. Why is it that so few Christians, it seems, are very passionate about the very thing the apostles seem to encourage the most? 
You know, it's not hard to find Christians, especially younger Christians, who are very eager to do something big for Christ. It's not hard to find Christians in their 20s and their 30s who are very eager to, you know, to, to sort of create a, an ideal family life. Uh, who's the right man? Who's the right woman? And, and then, you know, we're going to have the right kids and get them involved in the right schooling, and then everything will be well. And it's not hard to find Christians of all ages who are very eager to make a difference in the culture, especially now that the culture is so obviously corrupt. Now, in all of those things, all of them are good things and all have their place, but it's also true that the New Testament spills relatively little ink addressing those matters. I say relatively, it does give instruction there, but in actuality, those are matters of wisdom by and large, and that wisdom to make the right choice in those areas comes from pursuing what the New Testament does spill a lot of ink on. Because the reality is that the New Testament spends a lot of time exhorting the believer to a personal holiness. Personal holiness is an emphasis that is stamped throughout every page of the scriptures, really. I think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's about what life should be like in this, in, in what this kingdom life should be like in the church, as well as we live out this vision for God's people, and we forgive, we turn the other cheek, we understand the law and how to engage the law with the lost. Or think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think of the language that he often uses of putting on and putting off, of shedding those old ways and putting on the new ways of thinking and being in Christ. Or James's letter and John's letter. You know, personal uh, holiness is a major theme throughout all of Scripture. And, and perhaps it's unfair to sort of pit the two against each other, changing the world and changing ourselves. I'm not actually intending to pit the two against each other. But what I do want us to be most zealous about is that which I think the Lord desires us to be most zealous about. It's personal holiness. Because if there's going to be great impact on the culture, if there's going to be something big done for Christ, if there's going to be healthy Christian marriages, then personal holiness will precede those things. And you have to conclude from the New Testament that the writers are much more concerned that you and I are changed. Such were some of you, as the Apostle Paul says, right? And perhaps if it is God's will, that will lead in God's kindness to different parts of our society and the world being changed. But what you have some control over, humanly speaking, because we can't impose change on everything ourselves, that has to be God doing that, but what we do have control over, humanly speaking, is our own lives. Now that's what the, the apostles are concerned about. Are you being changed? Think of all the effort that we put into things. Our jobs, our honey-do lists. I'm sure our wives think we need to put more effort into those. Uh, our, our children and their education, and that's important. Home projects, graduating college. Uh, some people work very hard in the gym, and, and those are all very good things. But in comparison, is it even comparable? Should it even be something to compare to? I mean, what about godliness? Do we have goals for our personal holiness? Understanding, of course, that it is God who sanctifies. Uh, like maybe you're aware right now that you don't have a very good routine when it comes to praying and reading and studying the Word. Or even better, uh, of 
valuing the Lord's day and prioritizing it so that you can give yourself to resting in the Lord and gathering with the saints on the Lord's day, both morning and evening? Do you have goals for your personal holiness? Are you doing things to try to increase that, to, to live in a way that is more glorifying and honoring to God? Remember what 2 Peter 1.5 said, make every effort to supplement to your faith. So remember our context here in the letter. Peter's first aim is to remind us who we are in Christ, our identity. He reminds us of what it is to be a Christian, a Christ follower, one who is a disciple of Jesus, who first is loved by him so that they love him back, who it is that we are and what it is that we do based on who it is that we are in Christ. And the order in which we understand that is important. We can't mess that up. It's important that we grasp this so that we don't become the very people that Peter is warning about in chapter 2. And to be especially clear, notice the careful way that he frames what he's saying. So verse 1 here in 2 Peter, he's writing to people who have obtained a faith of equal standing with theirs, meaning the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's, it's not this faith. It's not something that all people have at all places and they just need to exercise it. It's a saving faith. It's a gift from God. The same faith the apostles had, that is obtained by them. Why? Notice the end of verse 1. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian's faith, which is a true saving faith, is the work of God in us. And then after that, there's this little mini-sermon beginning in the beginning of 2 Peter, verse 3 through 11, and it has to do with godliness. He's concerned about godliness. First, we consider the power for godliness, that the Christian has a need for divine power, that we are not sufficient in ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. The Christian life is not one of achieving on our own. It is a life of receiving everything that we need for eternal life and godliness from Jesus Christ. The, the power for godliness has a source, and that source is Christ Jesus. The Christian, the person who is united to Christ, because of that union with Christ, they have all that they need for life and godliness. You don't need some priest. You, Christ gives everything to you that you need. And because of that, we can even escape corruption in the world, we read in verse 4. And then in verses 5 through 7, because of the power for godliness, which is the gracious gift toward us in Christ Jesus, which enables us even, by the way, to participate in the divine nature, verse 4, we are then given this pattern for godliness. And the pattern requires effort. Hopefully you remember that from last time. But we are to be increasing in good works because God's work to sanctify us, it is His work to sanctify us, and we put in effort then. Effort that is rooted in grace and the grace of God and dependent upon God as He sanctifies us. He's the agent in our sanctification. We are acted on by Him, and we don't have ourselves to thank for any godliness in us. We have God, and God to thank alone for that. And we can't confuse that order. That the power for godliness is necessary for considering, for considering the pattern for godliness. Because if you want to take the pattern that Peter lists here in verses 5 through 7, but you sought to employ it in your own power, apart from the divine power that is supplied to you in Christ Jesus. Well, for one, it would never be done. And two, whatever did get done, you would have yourself to thank for it and not God. It would be man-centered, and your boast would be yourself 
and not Christ. Which, I don't think I need to tell you, but that's not good. That's, that's not good to boast in ourselves rather than boasting in Christ. True godliness will boast in Christ and not in ourselves. Humility is a mark of godliness. Pride is not. And the pattern of godliness is rooted in faith and it culminates in love. Its height is love. And now we come to the third point. We have power, then there's a pattern, and for this morning, the purpose of godliness. What is godliness actually for? What good is it? Why is godliness so important, especially in light of the issue of apostasy that the Apostle Peter is dealing with? Well, those, those questions are huge. Answering them correctly is the difference between understanding law and gospel correctly. It is the difference in understanding salvation by grace alone or salvation by grace and something else, which then is no longer salvation. And so, for example, if you say, well, I make every effort to be godly so that I might be accepted by God or even to maintain my place with God, well, then you lose the gospel. You've confused law and gospel at that point. Now, you've just lost justification on the basis of Christ through faith alone. It's all or nothing there. Or if you say, I try really hard to be godly so that I would impress the people that, you know, that I know and that I go to church with. Well, that shows that you don't yet understand the gospel. So, so why be godly? The Apostle Peter gives us three points here in the text. Number one... Godliness renders you to be fruitful, a fruitful, effective Christian. That's verse 8. Number 2, godliness confirms your calling and election. That's verse 9 and 10. And then 3, godliness provides a rich entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom, which is verse 11. So first we're made to consider something that I think every true Christian would actually want. And so this should really cause our ears to perk up. I mean, don't we all want to be more effective and more fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that something that is good? Isn't that something that we all want and desire? Is there something more important than that for, for you once you are already saved? What are we even doing at all if that's not on our hearts? Peter even begins this epistle by praying that peace and grace would grow in us through the knowledge of Christ. We, we can't miss the centrality of what of desiring what Peter mentions here in verse 8 and the importance of it as it builds into the second point and then the third point as well. And so if we're able to just pull back a little bit now and to think of what Peter is writing about in this letter, which is for the most part the dangers of apostasy, and how in this section he's dealing with godliness in the Christian First, where it comes from, and then what it looks like, like in the life of the Christian, the pattern of it and the effort we put in, which gives God glory. What he's doing now in our text is turning it to the consequence of it and the purpose of it. And if I could sum that up for us before considering the three points that Peter makes, what it is, is a true biblical assurance. That is, a confident trust that God's saving efforts have been applied to you. And can God fail, saints? No, he cannot fail. That's an it's important thing to possess. Biblical assurance. This is an important matter, brothers and sisters. I mean, how many saints are depressed and anxious because they lack assurance of their salvation? 
How many are weak and crippled and lacking joy and rest because they are lacking biblical grounds for assurance? In some sense, that's every Roman Catholic, isn't it? Or every true Arminian, right? Every true synergist when it comes to salvation, where a person has to cooperate with God and provide some effort towards their justification. And if you believe you can lose your salvation, or if you believe that your salvation hinges upon your actions and ability, even your doctrine, then where is your, your assurance but ultimately in yourself? And we are weak examples, saints. Even true believers will from time to time have issues with assurance. They may struggle and have a difficulty obtaining it. But here's the thing. God wants for you to have it. God's desire is for you to have it. The Lord God isn't desiring for his saints to apostatize, and they won't, not permanently. True believers may be subject to a dark providence for a time and, and wander from the Lord, but if they are truly saved, we know that they will at some point come back to the Lord like we see in the example with the prodigal son. And so, I might add even, that's why we continue to always pray for those who at one time professed faith but then walked away from it. Because Jesus will, not, will lose none of what the Father has given him, John 6, 39. And nothing can separate us from the love that God has loved us with, Romans 8. And because he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of completion in the day of Christ, Philippians 1, 6. And further, God would want his saints to have assurance. Of course, you know, God is sovereign, and so perhaps there's a lack of assurance at some point, and his purpose is so that the warnings of Scripture would do their job, more on that in a, in a little bit. But generally speaking, he's wanting us to have assurance, to enjoy it. It's often bad teaching that results in the lack of it. And again, think of any system of salvation that requires people to earn salvation. I mean, that is, that is breeding in a person a lack of assurance. Just consider how sinful we are. That's all, that's all you have to know to realize how that, how that works and, and how that breaks assurance. And so listen to the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 18, um, the assurance of grace and salvation here. This is Article 1. It says, Temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will, ne will never make them ashamed. And then Article 2 says, This certainly is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith, that is, assurances, founded on the blood, of the ri blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It is further based on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is a direct quote of Romans 8.16. As the fruit of this assurance, our hearts are kept both humbly and holy. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Romans, Romans 5, 2 through 5. About what assurance should do and why we should have it. It says, Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, that is what biblical assurance does for us, saints. It gives us hope because we stand in grace. And even the bad things that happen to us in this life, the things that we don't like, the ways in which we suffer, when you have a biblical assurance, we understand that those are the very things that sanctify us, that are building up our character in Christ. And, and that hope, the Apostle Paul says, does not put us to shame. So it's vitally important that we understand these things. And in our first point, Peter makes almost like a rhetorical statement. So let's look at that. Back in 2 Peter, he says, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to experience, and that's an important word here, experience assurance in my life, Note what this says in verse 8. If these qualities are yours and increasing, that's the first thing he mentions, that you're pursuing these qualities. If you want to enjoy assurance and all of its riches, here is the means. By pursuing these qualities, if you do that and you find them increasing in your life, they render you neither ineffective in the true knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord or unfruitful. Now, you have to follow me a little bit closely here because this is a rather intricate and tricky argument that Peter gives us. The, the little phrase, if these qualities are yours, meaning he's calling us back to what he said before in verses 5 through 7, those seven virtues that he mentioned there. If they belong to you, and by the way, in the Greek, the verb denotes property which someone really owns. They actually have these. I know it says if. Like I said, it's kind of a rhetorical statement, but the, the word that is used really promotes actual ownership of these things. Uh, it, it, it denotes an abiding possession, and the, ex the expression is very strong. In other words, it's if you really, since you really have these vir virtues, and they are in you in the increase, and there is growth, the verb there is pleonas, which means that you have more than enough to, be, to have more than is necessary, to almost even to have too much. That if you see these virtues in your life, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, personal holiness, brotherly kindness, and love, if you see those virtues in your life and you see them on the increase, he says, again back to verse 8, they keep you from being, that is, they render you neither ineffective nor unfruitful. So let me just speak about those two terms briefly. Ineffective means literally out of work, inactive, idle. It's used eight times in the New Testament. It always means unserviceable, inoperative, and inactive when, it, when it's used. As such as in like Titus 1.12, where it has that interesting phrase um, that people are these lazy gluttons. You know, they are ineffective is what he means by that. By the way, in James 2.20 to 22, it's translated as dead there. Dead. If, if you pursue these virtues, you won't be inoperative, inactive, and useless. You won't be, in one sense, dead in terms of your effectiveness. And then he adds unfruitful. And that basically means the same thing as unproductive. Uh, this word is used seven times in the New Testament, and usually it's used of trees, which makes sense with keeping with the metaphor. Uh, it's used of unregenerate apostates in Jude 12, who are like trees without fruit. 
It's used in Ephesians 5.11 of the unfruitful works of darkness. It's used in Matthew 13.22 of the unfruitful, superficial believers. It's used in Titus 3.14 even of a true believer who is unfruitful. So he's saying that when your life does not manifest these things, these Christian virtues, which we talked about last time, then you are ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And should a person who is living like that, neglecting those things, should they possess an assurance of salvation? Should they? No, right? They, they should not. And the warnings then concerning apostasy, which are coming, should cause that person to fear and repent. But if, you, if they are in you and they are in the increase, you're then not useless. You're not ineffective or unfruitful. Your life is increasingly fruitful. And so the person then would be experiencing assurance in light of the presence of these increasing virtues. And when they're not there, well, the reality is that you're, from a human perspective at least, indistinguishable from an apostate. You're indistinguishable from an evildoer. You're indistinguishable from a superficial or a nominal believer. Now, look at the phrase at the end of verse 8 because it's important. He says, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, reminds us here that he's referring to true Christians. Remember verse 1 through 4, how is it that a person becomes a Christian? It's all because of what Christ has done through the knowledge of Christ that is imparted to them through the gift of faith. He's saying you possess a true knowledge as opposed to a false knowledge. You are a real believer. Now, a real believer then has the capacity to produce these virtues rooted in faith and culminating in love. They are gifts within the new nature because God says to the believer through Christ that you are blessed with every blessing, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.13. He says in this very letter, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, 2 Peter 1.3. So the foundation, the, the potential for all seven of these virtues is there in the true believer. Peter is saying that generally speaking, a true and genuine believing Christian who sees these things in the increase and growing in, the, in his life is not ineffective, is not unproductive, but enjoys fruit and, the, and effectiveness in his life. And he or she, when this is true, should be experiencing the assurance of their salvation. I, I look around at you all, and I know that many of you, in fact, are experiencing the assurance of your salvation. It's a great mercy of God towards you. But I do want to offer a word of caution here to everyone, and especially to, to you children who are here this morning, you young people that are here, especially for those of you that are growing up in the church. Those of you who are growing up in God-fearing homes and being trained in righteousness, as it should be. And please listen to me, because there's potential to be very confused here at this point. Peter is telling us that we will experience assurance when the Christian virtues listed in 5-7 through seven are ours. But he's not saying that we should gain our assurance by finding these things in us. Because what happens then is that the angle that our enemy, the devil, likes to take in this sort of fruit inspecting is, is he'll say, well, like, well how much 
of these qualities are present. How much are you increasing in them? And what we tend to do as people is get caught up in the moment, especially, you know, moments of weakness. And what, what if I cannot discern the outward and inward evidences in myself, like the confession states, and wonder if, and like these virtues that are listed here, and what if, you know, then I wonder if they're lacking. Should I then conclude that my faith is hypocritical or insincere? I, I mean, that is a possible conclusion, but it's not necessarily the correct conclusion. Okay, it's not necessarily the correct one. Because our assessment of the evidence of our outward faith, especially by these marks, may be faulty. We may be too hard on ourselves. We may doubt what others may clearly see in us. Satan may cloud our thinking. The lack of consistency may lead us to conclude that no evidence at all is present, is present which is, could be false. And personality and disposition may lead us to negative assessments when a more objective scrutiny deduces a different conclusion. And so what do we do then to gain assurance? What do, this is especially, I think, pertinent for, again, for those people who grow up in the church and they don't have some drastic conversion experience because there was, there's no past behind them where they were objectively sinful but yet they're growing up in the admonition of the Lord as is, is a blessing, as is a great mercy. What do we do to gain assurance then in a good way, in a healthy way? It's very simple, really. What we should do is we should look to Christ. We need what Pastor Sinclair Ferguson calls a gospel logic in a, the marrow of modern divinity, which leads to an understanding that there is no assurance of faith that can be experienced apart from faith. There's no assurance of faith that can be experienced apart from faith. So in other words, you have to have faith in the first place. And so in order to gain assurance, we look to the author and the finisher of the, our faith, who is Christ Jesus, to look to works and the counsel then, you know, to do more good works as a means of gaining assurance is essentially counterproductive and pastorally deadly. Only Christ can save us. And assurance, when lacking, must be found by looking to Him. Apart from faith in Christ, no work on our part will assure us of anything except legalism and antinomianism, which antinomianism is actually just legalism defined by the laws that you make. And, and counseling someone to look to Christ rather than their works doesn't lead to an abuse of grace. What this counsel intends is to secure, actually, an understanding that it is faith that gives rise to obedience rather than obedience giving rise to faith. And the difference, friends, is crucial. Uh, one gives rise to legalism. One is a heavy burden that none of us can bear. And the other gives itself over to evidentiary or responsive evangelical gospel-based good works. When we look to Christ, then we do good works for the right reason. But if we look to ourselves, we end up doing good works for the wrong reason. This is the same counsel to look to Christ first that Jesus said in his final words to disciples in the upper room. This is John 15. It's probably well known. The apostle John spends almost a third of his letter um, detailing the events that happen on leading right up to his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion. And so John 15 here, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so bearing fruit, which is something that Jesus identifies as keeping his commandments later on in verse 10, is intimately related to abiding in him. It is, the, it is in the sphere of abiding and not apart from it that fruit emerges. And so to abide in Christ doesn't mean to do more work, to try harder. It simply means to look to Christ, to, to rest in Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. In the words of Pastor Derek Thomas, there's only one cure for a lack of fruit in our Christian lives. It's to go back to Christ and enjoy, yes, enjoy our union with him. Take the burden off yourselves, saints. It doesn't belong on you. It belongs on Christ is the one who saves us and he's the one who sanctifies us. Now, that is Peter's first statement concerning godliness and assurance, pursuing these virtues with all diligence according to the effort prescribed and seeing how, then in your own life the increase of these things and the consequent usefulness and fruitfulness. That is how we experience assurance. And obviously when you, those things aren't increasing, Odds are you're not experiencing assurance. But look at the comments now in verse 9. So back in 2 Peter. In verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities, well, what qualities? Again, it's the same seven virtues. If one looks at his life and doesn't see moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, he doesn't see, he doesn't see it increasing. If he's not pursuing those things, we read that he is blind and short-sighted or nearsighted. By the way, those are really synonyms here in the text, just like ineffective and unfruitful are essentially synonyms. He's saying literally, he is blind being short-sighted. This is another way to say that he can't see far enough to discern his own spiritual condition. If a person, now follow this thought, if a person possesses these virtues, he will be effective and fruitful. If he is effective and fruitful, he will be able to identify his spiritual condition, right? He's experiencing his assurance because he can see the fruit of God's work in his life. He'll know his spiritual condition. But if on the other hand, these virtues are not on the increase, a person is then blind and short-sighted, nearsighted, and cannot see his true spiritual condition. So if you want to experience assurance, how you live impacts that. So the second point that we have to consider is godliness confirms our calling and election. So notice verses 9. These are, these are 9 and 10. They're difficult verses. They're easy to confuse law and gospel here, and so we're going we're gonna to try to untangle them. But they do raise a lot of questions. Is is Peter saying that we have to work somehow to make ourselves elect? Is he saying that we can be a carnal, Christ, a carnal Christian? Is he saying that we can actually possess salvation and then lose it and fall away from it? Well, let me try to untangle this by suggesting that there are three different kinds of people reflected in these two verses. That's the only way, I think, to make actual good sense of what Peter is saying here. So first, I think in verse 9, we see a reference to someone who has a profession of faith, but it's not consistent in their life right now. Some people might want to call it backslidden. I don't really love that term. It's too vague. Uh, what I'm thinking of is the kind of person who is described in 
the London Baptist Confession in the same chapter, chapter 18, but this time in Article 4. And this is what it says there about this person. It says, True believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. What a fearful thing that the Lord may do that. Yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces... Through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they're kept from utter despair through them. So, you know how the Christian life can often be. If you've been a Christian here for any length of time, as God sanctifies us, it's as if we take two steps forward and then one step back. This person, this first person, is the person who's taken a step back. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if you're so nearsighted, if your sight is so bad that basically that you're blind, no offense, Steves, uh, you're, you're, you're squinting. You know, your eyes are basically shut. And in particular, what this person can't see is his past. Now, some of you will say, well, I don't want to see my past. <laughs> and I get that. I mean, there should be a measure of guilt and remorse for sins that we have done. But that's not the respect that is being spoken of here. He can't see his past where he was saved, where he was cleansed, which makes the most sense really as a reference to bap their baptism here. Not that their water baptism actually saves them or actually cleanses the person, but as the Baptist Catechism says, it's a sign of that cleansing. I would encourage you to listen to the sermon that our brother Brendan preached on that on a Sunday evening uh, just a couple weeks ago, actually. And this is saying nothing different than what the Apostle Paul experienced in Acts um, 22.16. And he's telling his, um, his account of his uh, salvation. He says, and now why do you wait? Where he says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Not that the water baptism is actually doing that, but it's ceremonial and a sign that our sins have been washed away. That's why we go to the baptismal font, because of what has already happened to us spiritually. Because you've been cleansed from your former sins. So when you're not growing in godliness, you're like someone who has forgotten that they've been made new. Why go back to the mud after you've been made clean? John Calvin says, For the blood of Christ has not become a washing bath to us that it may be fouled by our filth. So this inconsistent person, he's, he's forgotten his past, and not in an innocent way. He's willfully choosing to forget. He's closed his eyes so that he may not remember. And that's why it's so serious when as Christians, we willfully go out and choose sin, which, if we're being honest, that's what it mostly is. Most of the time, we're not accidentally just falling into sin. Most of the time, it's this battle with our flesh. It's our old nature uh, that, we are be that we are being obedient to and, and obeying the flesh rather than the spirit whom we have been given. Not that there is two wars within us, but, there, but Paul describes this in Romans 7. How, he, how he, sometimes he does things according to his flesh, his body of death, which he w can't wait to be freed from. And he will one day. 
But it's not just that we've decided to do something bad when we sin. When we do that, we're actually trampling on the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ which cleansed you. And what you're, you're saying is, I don't care about that. I go out and do my own thing. I don't care about the blood of Christ. That's what you do, and that's what you're saying when you go out and decide to live however you want to live after coming to Christ. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed. Anyone who has been a parent understands what this is like, with the older kids at least, a little bit older kids. I mean, you have bath time for the kids, and when you get to bath time, you know what that means. You're getting close to that sweetest time of the day, bedtime, bedtime for the kids. You get a little bit of mommy and daddy time. Every marriage needs that. It's healthy. It's great. But it doesn't always work out that way, right? Think about what's coming up this evening, actually. From about 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock on a Sunday evening, it's one of the most challenging hours of the whole week. You know, you get home from church. The kids are wiped out. It's a long day, no pun intended, of resting in the Lord. And you get them to get in the bath and get showered and get ready. You want them in bed so they're clean. School's tomorrow so they smell good. They're in their jammies. Teeth are brushed. And then what do they do? Too often, that light comes on. And then the door creaks open. And what do they say? Mom, it's always mom, right? Mom, I'm hungry. No, you brushed your teeth. We're not doing that again. You've moved on from that. You're clean and that time has passed. Don't, don't you remember? You just had a bath and we're laying down now. Now you're up and you're trying to get dirty again. Well, I wonder if God sometimes feels that way about us. You've been made clean. Why do you want to go on living like this? This is an inconsistent person, the, the first way of thinking about this, this text. A second potential person we need to see so that we're not confused is an actual apostate. You see that at the end of verse 10. He says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, what does it mean to fall? I don't, I don't think that it means you'll never fall as like in the sense you'll never sin, right? Because 1 John tells us that's not a viable option anyway. He who says he has no sin is a liar. So it can't fall can't just be meaning sinning. And so I would argue that it means you'll never fall away completely from the Christian faith. That's what he's wanting to say, because the opposite is given in verse 11, which is an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Entrance, in the, entrance, entrance into the eternal kingdom is the opposite of what is described as a fall here. So if a person was to fall, this fall means that you have apostatized. Now, of course, I believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly justified cannot be unjustified, but we must be fair to what we read in the pages of Scripture. And what we see in the text are numerous examples of people who seem to be truly in the covenant community who make signs of allegiance to Christ, and in the end, they prove to not be genuine. It happens. It's always sad when it happens. He or she is one who is supposed to have been cleansed. Chapter 2 will even use stronger language, saying that these apostates are people who deny the master who bought them. Who bought them. Presumably, right? with his own blood. But that's why you have warnings in Scripture. The warnings are tough. What do we do with them? What, what do you do if you believe in the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints? And yet you have these kinds of warnings in the Bible. You know, you can be a, can you be a person who is really elect and then can that person fall away at some point? Well, no, 
No, that's not right. But one of the ways that God causes his true children to persevere is by means of these warnings. When God includes these warnings in the text, it is the means by which he is training the hearts of his elect to repent and to pursue godliness again. So those who truly belong to Christ, they're not casual to the warnings in Scripture. We don't just read the warnings in Scripture and be like, oh, well, that's not me. I'm chosen in Christ. I can do whatever I want. That's not what a Christian who was attempting to be godly does. That's not the response of one who was elect. What they say is, that's right. I've been cleansed. What am I doing? Lord, forgive me. I'm so grateful for the abundant mercy in Christ, which has granted me pardon, but turned me away from my sinful desires, Lord. The fact of the matter is that some with oppression of faith, some who may even be well-known in the covenant community, will stumble and fall. There's, and there's no mechanical sort of like a, I said a prayer, and therefore it doesn't matter how I live. Uh, we shouldn't sin so that grace should abound, of course. But if you're lacking these qualities, if you've given up on them, and you say, I don't really care about these things in life, and I'm just going to live the way that I want to live, and you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, it doesn't mean the same thing today as it did then, well then you should be afraid. All these people today supposedly deconstructing their faith and embracing sins that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, they should be afraid and they should not have assurance. Faith without works is dead. A habitual disinterest and disregard for godliness is a sign that you probably don't know God. So there's someone who is inconsistent, and when you have someone who is inconsistent, you warn them like they might be apostatizing, and then you see what happens. And when there is potential here also for someone who is actually apostate, who won't forget, who won't repent. But now the third category, the called, the elect, the person who has biblical assurance. You see there in verse 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm. God's sovereign choice. That's what we're asked to confirm here. God's sovereign choice. Now, we're never told in Scripture to try to pry into the recesses of God's mind. And like Spurgeon once said, we can't like pull up someone's shirt and see a big E on their back to know that they're elect. But at the same time, we're never meant to presume upon the doctrine of election as if God did it and then it doesn't matter how we live. That's not it. The evidence of salvation and indeed the evidence of election is quite simple. It's fruit. Fruit. Good elect trees bear good spirit-filled fruit. Those qualities are yours. When you're aware of your sin, you repent. You hate that you sin. You desire to be with the church. All good fruit. And most importantly, you hear his voice, meaning that you're his sheep. In John 10, 27. Well, what does it mean to hear the voice of Jesus here? Is it like some audible thing that you're supposed to hear? No, that's not it. It's quite simply what the rest of the verse says. He knows you and you follow him. That's what it means to hear the voice of Jesus. You believe who he said he is and you see yourself in light of him. And that shows you how much it is that you need him and you believe and know that. That's the fruit of a good tree. But sad, reprobate trees, they have bad God-forsaken fruit. There's a difference. So let me make this case and add a couple of things. One, keep in mind that you're not the best judge of yourself, and that can easily lead, lead to despair. I mentioned that a little bit already. You need to have others to be a mirror for you. 
There's a reason why Christ instituted the church of God as his covenant people, and they're all covenanted together with the Spirit as the seal of that community. We need each other. And secondly, it's important to not compare yourself to other Christians. People start at very different places. And remember, there is no biggie on our backs to help. You may have an unbeliever who, because of their strong family and upbringing and advantages that they had in life, coupled with a, just a sort of personality and disposition, that it's very easy for them to look relatively decent until they willfully don't want to anymore. And then at the same time, you may have, and I'm thinking of specific people even when I say that, and it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, you may have a believer who's truly born again, who has none of those advantages, who has actually has all sorts of disadvantages, all sorts of obstacles and family and personal history to overcome. And yet, by God's grace, they are overcoming. And they are growing. But you might look at them and say, well, I can't t really tell much of a difference. Or, or, you know, even if this believer doesn't look all too impressive, but you have to remember where they started. That's why it's so key to remember increasing increasing is what matters. That's what, why, he, why he mentions increasing in verse 8. That these qualities are growing in you. We're meant to see fruit in our lives so that we can experience assurance that we are truly God's elect. Calling, election, that's God's part. Our part is to confirm it. And how do we do that? Again, it's not just simply fruit inspecting by looking at our outward evidences to find genuine assurance we start with the objective work of Christ. Who he is and what he has done. We abide in him. We look to him. And then secondarily, after that is first established, we may ask if we have any fruit. It's subjective, but we confirm it that way also. But it's based on a previous objective confirmation. We don't gain assurance that way, but we confirm it that way. And so we look to the Spirit and we ask him to operate as he promised to do in the gospel through the preaching of the gospel. And so to confirm your, your election subjectively, we may realize the fruit of our character. It's how you relate to God and to people. Do you persevere? Are you moral? Are you seeking to be moral? Virtuous? Are you steadfast? Are you kind? Do you love? Are you self-controlled in a way that you handle your body? Do you notice progress in this regard? Nobody's going to be perfect. But again, that's why it's subjective, and this isn't our primary evidence. Our primary is to look to the objective, which is Christ and who he is and what he's done. But do others notice? I mean, children, do your parents notice your growth? That's what you do with your election. Make it sure, confirm it by practicing these qualities. But if you're a struggling Christian, if you're struggling with assurance, if your gaze is always within, if you're always looking at yourself, Assurance will remain fleeting. No doubt. I mean, we need to examine ourselves and test the fruit. But true assurance, la true lasting assurance, secure assurance, comes from looking to Christ and our union with Him. Look to the objective, and then soberly, and with the help of others, look to the subjective. As Robert Murray McShane wisely said, for every look to yourself, take ten looks to Christ. That's where assurance is. And then third and lastly here, godliness provides an entrance into the eternal kingdom. So verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the result of godliness. That's the reward that Christ earned for you. 
which one's godly, godliness evidences. That's the benefit of assurance. Peter's opponents here, though, the false teachers, they did not make their calling and election sure. And so they were not being provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. They lacked godliness. If you look at chapter 2, we have to, we have to look at chapter 2 to see this contrast here. Just briefly, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So here's people who do not make their calling and election sure. Though they knew the way of righteousness, they were somehow even on the way, the path, in a superficial sense. And yet remember again what Peter is saying at the beginning of chapter 2. False teachers also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Verse 4. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world. Verse 6. He uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of this, the point of it all, is to, is to show what is waiting the ungodly. He's been telling us what, 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 awaits the, what awaits godliness. But here in chapter 2, he's showing us what awaits those who are ungodly. To emphasize the wrath of God on those who may even at one time have appeared to be saved, yet who persist in apostasy. The Lord is not joking here, friends. He says they will not be provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Why? According to verse 6, because they were ungodly. They're there needs to be something to show for yourself. The godliness that Peter is describing here isn't some figurative or hypothetical construct. It's not the evidence that it's the evidence that you have been saved. And if there isn't any evidence at all, again, got to note the objective is subjective. Well, if there's no evidence at all, well, that's a problem. It's not to discount election and God's sovereign work of salvation. It's just to authorize the very same thing that James says. True faith is accompanied by works, which includes, you know, repentance for sin. You're not going to be perfect. And though the grace that God gives to that end, he, not you, note, this is Christ's eternal kingdom. It's not your eternal kingdom. It's yours through Christ, if you are Christ, but it's Christ's eternal kingdom. And through the grace he gives that enables one to be godly, that provides a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. It's all Christ. We confirm it. We evidence it, but it has its source and its root in the objective work of Christ. And that's why Peter wants us to grow in the knowledge of Christ. It's in his holy and sinless life. It's in his substitutionary death. It's in the atonement of Christ applied to you through the Spirit that results in godliness. He, the Lord Jesus, fits us for heaven as he sanctifies us. And the result of that is an increasing of godliness in our lives. But those people who are engaged in persistent defiance, unrepentant wickedness, they will not be welcomed into heaven, no matter what their profession is, no matter what church they go to, or no matter what another person says to them to assuage their conscience. Listen to J.C. Ryle here. This is from his classic holiness. He says, I know not what others may think, but to me it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. There must be a certain meetness for the inheritance of the saints in light. Our hearts must be somewhat in tune to reach the holiday of glory, 
We must pass through the training school of grace. We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in this life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven, the life to come. That's why I think primarily too that saints just naturally love to gather with the church on the Lord's day. Why? Because this is supposed to be a foretaste of what heaven is like. It's like, again, come back tonight. You don't have time in the day to worship twice with your church family? Come back. This is what heaven is about. Why would a person want heaven where the height of holiness and godliness is achieved, but yet they don't want it now? It makes no sense. If you care about holiness and godliness now, and you're experiencing assurance through that, recognize that the Lord is working now through you. If you want to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord, pursue godliness. If you want to have assurance of God's election and calling, not earn it, but have assurance of it, then Peter says, pursue godliness. Do you want to have a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, one that is not riddled with doubt? Well, it won't be had apart from godliness. And thanks be to Christ, who has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these words this morning were heavy. We know that we fall so very short of your righteous standard. We know that you demand perfect, perpetual, and permanent godliness and holiness. And we know that none of us do that even after we have been redeemed. And so we thank you for the mediatorial work of our Savior, Lord Jesus, who lived a holy life for us so that we can be accredited and, impu- and have his righteousness imputed to us in a forensic sense so that in such a way that when you see us on that day of judgment, it is Christ and his godliness that is seen so that you would be glorified in that. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give us so that we might pursue godliness. And we ask that you would be pleased to give us more grace so that we would, by grace, through the faith that you have given, put to death the sin that remains, that we might mortify the flesh. And we know, Lord, that that's not in our strength to do it. So we, we plead for Christ in Christ's name and for his sake that you would give us more grace so that we can pursue holiness. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to all have a biblical assurance as well. Help us, Lord, to know that our salvation hinges not ultimately upon what we do and what we don't do, but upon what has been done for us in Christ and the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace being applied to us. And then out of that, we pray that you would sanctify us and help us to increase in godliness for your glory's sake. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.